Today's episode of The Andy Staples Show is brought to you by Robinhood. With Robinhood, you can invest in stocks, options, and ETFs right from your phone. You can even spend and earn interest on uninvested cash. And with fractional shares, you can buy stocks in any amount, including companies like Apple, Amazon, and Tesla, for as little as $1. And that's with no commission fees or account minimums. So whether you're new to investing and ready to learn, or just looking for a better experience, stop waiting and join the 10 million Robinhood users. Listeners can get started with a free stock by going to staplesshow.robinhood.com. That's staplesshow, all one word, S-T-A-P-L-E-S-S-H-O-W.robinhood.com. That's staplesshow.robinhood.com. All investments involve risk. This is not investment advice, a recommendation, or a solicitation of any security. Other fees may apply. Visit rbnhd.co slash fees. The free stock program is subject to certain limitations Annual percentage yield on uninvested cash is paid by program banks and is variable. Robinhood Financial is not a bank. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. We are now deep in the throes of the offseason but there is still news happening, still stuff going on, and some really interesting news this week that actually created a larger conversation about a completely different school. I'll set it up for you this way. So we all know Dave Aranda left to become the head coach at Baylor after a very successful run as LSU's defensive coordinator, leaving the Tigers in need of a new defensive coordinator. They decided to hire their old defensive coordinator from a way back, Bo Pelini. Bo Pelini last seen working at LSU for less miles. They won the 2007 national title, and then Pelini was hired as Nebraska's head coach. And it's interesting because it feels like every conversation about Bo Pelini, who who spent the last few years at Youngstown State as head coach, going to LSU came back to being a Nebraska conversation. Because it's absolutely fascinating when you look at what Bo Pelini did in Nebraska and then compare it to Nebraska now, and remember that he got fired because they weren't happy with his results. But he's got one of the more complicated legacies you're going to find. And to talk about it, I bring in Mitch Sherman, who covers Nebraska for us. And, and Mitch, let's, let's get this part out of the way first. What's LSU getting in terms of a defensive mind? Yeah, well, I think that we'll, you know, we'll find out pretty quick. But Bo was, was kind of out of sight out of mind, I think, for just about everybody in college football over the last five years because he was in the FCS. And Nebraska fans, of course, remembered the seven seasons that he was in Lincoln. And, and I think that the, the fact that the conversation always comes back to Nebraska, when you, when you're, even when you're talking about Bo going to LSU, speaks somewhat to the obsessive nature of Nebraska fans to always want to talk about their program and will somehow you know, dominate a conversation even when it involves the, the, you know, a, a significant position for the, the reigning national champs. But um, look, I mean, he, he, when he left major college football after the 2014 season, was still um, a preeminent mind defensively in in the game. It had diminished from six, seven years before because of, of the way that the Nebraska program eroded uh, in terms of its success after transitioning from the Big 12 to the Big 10. But I, I don't think Bo forgot what he knew about defense. When he was at LSU on that first go-around, uh, hey, they won a national championship. You know, he was grooming guys like Glenn Dorsey, uh, turning turning them into uh, you know big time NF future NFL players. Did the same thing with Indomitian Sue at Nebraska shortly a- after his arrival. People forget that Indomitian Sue was not on the track to be Indomitian Sue as we know him when Pelini took over for Bill Callahan after the 2007 season. And he did that with a lot of other guys in his time at Nebraska too. As we put together our, our all decade teams uh, last fall at at the athletic, um, I I was struck at how much it was just totally dominated by players at Nebraska uh, on the, on the Nebraska team players from the Pelini years, in particular defensive guys from the Pelini years. And you, you can say, well, the Huskers have had virtually no success since he left, but 
Um, it was it was more than that. He has a knack for being able to, to identify defensive talent, to find the right spot on the field for it, and then develop that that talent and send guys on to the NFL. So um, that hasn't changed, and, and LSU is is getting that guy, and he'll obviously have incredible talent from day one to work with in Baton Rouge. So let's go back to five years ago when Bo Pelini got fired, and it was an interesting situation because – it was one of those where from the outside, people would look at it and say, all right, this guy, he's winning nine games a year. He, he's getting two conference championship games. They're not quite over the hump in those games, but they're getting there. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Because, yes, it could get better, but it could also get worse. But what was the mindset among Nebraska fans at the time? Because there was a lot more to Pelini uh, in terms of the, the somebody had taped him talking about the fan base you had the the athletic director yeah. sean eichhorst who was his own uh you know that was an interesting set of circumstances with him too what was the the general mood around the program in 2014 it, sta- it was stagnant and uh, nebraska i think nebraska felt that it gave Polini adequate time to make that adjustment from the big 12 to the big 10 and in looking back at it perhaps that was not the case i think Everyone around the program, inside the program, outside the program, underestimated just how significant that transition was going to be, not just from uh, the style of play, but also just from the commitment to football that everyone in the conference gave. It it was no longer just Texas and Oklahoma and another program here or there that cared 52 weeks of the year about football. It was essentially every program in the conference uh, acting that way. And, and, and on Nebraska's level. And Nebraska had an edge, in certainly in the Big 8, if you go on to go way back, and also in the Big 12 over most of the programs and just the way that it cared about football. And that changed. And I don't know that that was taken into account in those years, 11 through 14, where Pelini coached in, in the Big 10 for Nebraska. So, um, he, it, but there, it, it was getting very stale. Um, there was a lot of emphasis uh, from uh, from the perspective of Nebraska people placed on uh, the, the way that he, he recruited, uh, especially toward the end. It wasn't his favorite thing to do. Um, he didn't like necessarily dealing with a lot of the outside noise, had run-ins um, you know, with, with the media, had the incident where he was taped, as you mentioned to Andy, um, talking down to the fans. Um, and it got really bad in the, in the days right after Bo was let go in in another meeting that was taped off campus that he had with his team where he, he just came down very hard um, on the administration. You know, he was upset and said things that, uh, you know, probably didn't bode well for his, his future employment. So good on Bo for, for his resilience and being able – when, when he went out the way that he did, you know, just burning things to the ground, every bridge that he had at Nebraska – uh, the thought in my mind that he would ever coach at the major college level again, you know, there, there was a real question there. So for him to get back to this point, um, you know, to, to collect the paycheck that he's going to from LSU, it speaks to his resilience. It speaks to his level of coaching, you know, and what Ed, Ed Ogeron sees in, in Bo Pelini as a defensive guy, um, knowing that, uh, you know, he does have a lot of baggage. It's there. It's still in his past. But, uh, you know, obviously in the SEC um, and at LSU, they're not too concerned about that. Well, and to do it right when the Nebraska money runs out is pretty impressive. I mean, that basically the Nebraska checks dried up. And he hops to an SEC coordinator job where he's back in a back in a seven figure salary. So uh, I, I guess it all worked out for him. But but let's talk about Nebraska because uh, the AD who fired him and then hired Mike Riley with Sean Eichhorst, he's gone. Uh, got Bill Moose in there now at AD. You got Scott Frost coaching the team. But in terms of football success, none of them has been able to match even what Bo Pelini did. And if you remember, nine and three, five and three in the Big Ten, his final year there. They give anything to go nine and three and five and three in the Big Ten. Well, five and four or six and three in the Big Ten now. But they they give anything to do that now. Right. That's that's over the top as far as what Nebraska's expectations are as we go into twenty twenty. And and a lot of that is is collateral damage that still exists as a result of the transition from Pelini to Riley and the fact that that never had a chance to get off the ground. In year two, Mike Riley started 7-0, and ended up finishing bad, 
Um, and that was the beginning of the end for, for his regime, which lasted three years. So you can trace a lot of the problems that you see today in the Nebraska program, just one winning season in five years since Bo Pelini left. You can trace a lot of that back to the turmoil that existed at the time of the transition from Pelini to Riley. They're still digging out of that hole. Um, <laughs> and you look ahead. Can, can, yeah. can, I, can I run a theory by you? Sure. This is this is one okay. So Sean Eichhorst was an AD who never really big on actual oh I don't know what's the word accountability. Did not like to answer questions. Seemed to be afraid of of his own shadow. My theory was that the reason he hired Mike Riley, who by the way was about to get fired at, at Oregon State if he had another bad year, was that he picked the one coach in college football who wouldn't yell at him after he'd been yelled at for years by Bo Pelini. He got yelled at by Bo Pelini on the way out the door. There's no question about that. And I think there were probably some closed-door conversations uh, between the two of them that, that uh, I-Courts didn't come uh, out of feeling, feeling all that well. It was just an unbelievably awkward and strange fit, um, Sean I-Courts and, and Bo Pelini. He picked the guy, perhaps yes, who he knew was least likely to yell at him, but also the guy who was the most opposite in every possible way that you could be from what Bo, Bo Pelini was for Nebraska. And people were uh, tired in some ways of some of the, the the extracurricular activity that came with Bo Pelini, the drama that came every year seemingly on, on one level or another with Bo Pelini's time at Nebraska. Mike Riley did not bring that drama. In the, you, can, you can say with certainty in those three years at Nebraska, none of that stuff existed, and Nebraska was much worse as a football team at the end of that time. So they have Scott Frost in there now, and the thought was, here's Scott Frost. He took over UCF. They went undefeated in his final season there. He'll turn it all around. He's been here. He knows what works here. What have been the stumbling blocks for Scott Frost in these first couple of years? Um, well, a couple things. Uh, I, I would start with just the inability to retain and develop talent that, as I said, existed in the program before Scott Frost came. Nebraska had essentially two ruined recruiting classes around the departure of Riley and the arrival of Frost. Not entirely ruined in that first year under Frost, and that's a credit to him that he was able to recruit some players who have who continue to make a difference in the program, including his his starting quarterback, Adrian Martinez, in, in, in short time um, in that 2017, winter of 17, uh, January, February 18 class. Um, but the 17 class, which was the last one under Riley, is just a complete disaster. Um, was looking at these numbers this morning as Nebraska had another player. They're, they're all at Oregon State, aren't they? Well, a few of them are. I mean, you have Tyjon Lindsey, who was a you know borderline five-star guy, once committed to Ohio State, um, who's now at Oregon State and, and not doing well there. Uh, Avery Roberts is there. The quarterback in that 2017 class, Tristan Jebby, is at Oregon State. You had Keyshawn Johnson Jr. in that class. Um, who is somewhere? Uh, I don't think he's in college football. Um, yeah, there, there, there were. I was looking at that class today as Nebraska had another player from that group enter the transfer portal. Fifty percent of the guys now um, are out are out of the program before their eligibility expired, and only one player, one player from the eighteen in the eighteen in that signing class who enrolled as members of the two thousand seventeen recruiting class for Nebraska has become an established starter. That's that's left tackle uh, Brendan Hymas. So it's a it's a lost recruiting class and it takes years to get over that. Those guys are now fourth year players in this program. The next two years would have been their time to shine um, on, on the big 10 stage and Nebraska is essentially without a class. I mean, there are a few guys who are in backup roles, as I said, one as a starter, but, uh, you, you, when, when that happens, um, you know, it's like putting yourself on probation and it wasn't much better in Frost's first year because that was just a, a transition. And it was the first year of the early signing period. And as you remember, Scott Frost and his coaching staff spent much of that December coaching UCF getting UCF ready for the Peach Bowl against Auburn. So you put that together, those two years together, and it just creates a huge hole in, in the program. Nebraska's digging out of it. And the majority of the roster are freshmen and sophomores. I mean, over 60% of the roster. Um, it's the, the numbers are huge. They've got 160 guys on the team. Most of them are young. The recruiting classes the last couple of years look much better on paper. They're keeping guys in the program. 
Um, and they're going to need to continue to do that for a couple of seasons to get back to the level or get to the level that, that, that Scott Frost envisions or even have a chance to get to the level that, that Scott Frost envisions. He's, he also has had something of a rude awakening coming into the Big Ten, much like Pelini did two coaches before him. Um, his, his staff uh, was in the AAC. They did not have experience in this league, and they were surprised at the level of physicality, the toughness that it took in 2018 to be able to compete against Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and still got clobbered by them in uh, in year two. In, in the case of uh, certainly in the case of Minnesota, I mean, an embarrassment for the Huskers uh, up up in Minneapolis. So there's there's still a long ways to go. And you look at the schedule over the next couple of years; it's brutal next year. The Huskers play five straight opponents at the end to close the season, who finished this year in the top 15 um, after uh, a somewhat. Uh, softer start to, to, to the schedule in 2021. Uh, they got to go to Oklahoma. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a uh, it's not like hey blue skies ahead for Scott Frost in this journey. You know you've endured the worst and now it's going to get a lot better. They have uh, they have a lot of work left to do to get to a point where uh, where he wants this to see this program. Hey sports fans, I have a daily sports podcast I want to tell you about from Wondery and the Athletic. It's called The Lead. Every weekday morning, The Lead brings you a deep dive into the biggest sports stories of the day from the Athletics All-Star team of local and national sports reporters. Hey, I'm one of those guys. Stories like, where did the 49ers new star running back Raheem Mostert come from? Well, you college football fans know he's from Purdue. Did you also know he was a new Smyrna Beach High Barracuda? Or, what can Zion Williamson do for the Pelicans? And, well, if you saw his debut, the answer is probably pretty much everything. So if you're looking for the full story behind last night's scores and today's hot takes, make sure you subscribe to The Lead from Wondery and The Athletic. Well, I have a theory, too, that the the early signing period essentially took what we expect of year two and pushed that into year three. Because you really you, you, you are nuking a signing class if you get if you change coaches in the age of the early signing period. So I, I do wonder, Mitch, how many guys who Frost has recruited are now ready to contribute on the field. Uh, he's getting more now that you, you know, you, in, in that 18 class, his first one, which is a class like you just mentioned where you're nuking it. And that's on the heels, as I said, of a class that was, was, was nuked in a di- in a different way. Um, th- there are, You've got Martinez. You know, you had a, a, a debacle with Maurice Washington, who's now out of the program, the running back um, for off-the-field issues or related to off-the-field issues. Uh, that that was a key member of that class. There are other guys. Nebraska has a starting center out of that uh, out of that compromised 2018 class, Cam Jurgens, that the Huskers expect to be an All Big Ten guy by the time he's done after starting last year as a redshirt freshman. Um, and then and w- where it really starts to come into play, and you start to see the guys who can make a difference in mass, I mean, multiple players all over the field. Um, as far as a recruiting class, is that 2019 class, um, and they redshirted all but. Uh, four of those players uh, a year ago. So at least they're trying to do it the right way. They're not rushing players uh, onto the field and taking them past that four-game limit just because you know that they could make you a game or two better. They, they, they are in this for the long haul. This is not uh, Arkansas or Florida State where you saw coaches fired in, in year two in the same group that, that, uh, that, that Scott Frost belonged to as, as hires three years ago. Um, there's patience at Nebraska, no doubt about it. He got a two-year extension at, at the end of, of two losing seasons to start start his tenure. Nebraska's building a $160 million. Uh, you know, Nebraska has incredible facilities. If you walk through the facilities, I mean, for years and years and years, they've talked about the facilities, top of the game, you know, top of the top of, of, of college football. Um, and, and here they are pouring another $160 million into a, a new all-under-one-roof facility that will be um, uh, uh, just above and beyond. So that shows a level of commitment to to Scott Frost. This is his vision. This suits his team with the expanded roster, a huge locker room, a huge weight room, um, and and you know it's going to help ne- continue to help Nebraska 
in recruiting. So there's a lot of optimism because of those things, because everybody is on the same page with where they see this thing going and who they see leading it. But, um, you know, patience is, is going to be tested. I would imagine moving forward because it's not like you go from five wins to nine wins in, in 2020, looking at what that, how that schedule sets up, or if it does, if it does happen that way, it's going to take a great coaching job. So I'll ask you the existential question because you, you've covered Nebraska, but you've also covered the Big Ten as a whole. You've covered other programs where you, you kind of see how other folks do things. Can Nebraska – well, I, actually, before I ask you that, what do Nebraska fans expect? Because I'm, I'm curious from an outsider's point of view, I don't get the sense that they expect the kind of dominance they had in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But they do want something better, maybe something like what Wisconsin has. Yeah. But what what's a realistic expectation there? Yeah, that's that's like that's such a common question. It's a question that I always hear in talking to people, whether whether it's people who cover college football outside of Nebraska nationally, or or even just fans of programs around the country. I, I think there's a perception. There has been a perception for a lot of the last two decades that Nebraska was just expecting to snap its fingers and go back to the mid '90s and you know go 60 and three over a five year period and playing four national championship games. And I think those expectations are long gone. You know, they were gone uh, five to seven years after Nebraska exited from from that period of time in, in its program. Now, and, and they've continued to, to, to expect the, the expectations have continued to go down, um, you know, a step here, a step there, as the Huskers have had less and less success. And now you're in this period where you, you just had, you've had uh, unparalleled lack of success in, in four losing seasons in five years. I mean, that it, Nebraska never in its worst dreams expected it would get that bad, even when Bill Callahan was coach, when, uh, you know, Pelini had the, the, the inability to take it to the next level. Um, th- this kind of, of, of failure and just in sheer wins and losses was, was, was never even thought to be possible. So with that, you get a lowered level of expectation. Um, I, I, Nebraska fans certainly want more than just six wins, get us to a bowl game. Um, you know, it's not they, – they, they haven't reached, I would say, anything close to that level. But, yeah, I mean, Wisconsin is is a is a, a standard that they, that they would love to get to. Um, expect to compete every year in the Big Ten West. Um, make a jump – along the lines of what Minnesota has done the last year, year and a half under PJ Fleck. There's a starting point. Nebraska, you know, to the I'm sure to the um, jeering of Minnesota fans, expects never to be behind Minnesota uh, in, in its own division. Expects never to get handled the way that it did against Minnesota in Minneapolis last year. So clear that hurdle. Get on the level of Iowa. Get to the level of Wisconsin. Really, it's about competing in the Big Ten West, which is on the rise uh, before Nebraska can dream about uh, competing with Ohio State, Michigan, getting back in the national conversation. First, you have to learn to walk in your own division before you can have those dreams of uh, doing big things and getting to the place that Nebraska was at for a long time on the national landscape. Well, it's it's going to be interesting to watch them try to do it because it, it feels like it gets harder and harder every year. It does. It does. Uh, it, it, the, the, the kids now who you're recruiting to come into your program were not alive the last time Nebraska won a conference championship. Um, they don't have those. They don't have the, those memories. Their parents do. Their coaches do. Um, but it's not the same if you haven't ever seen it happen. It's it's uh, it's more difficult than ever to recruit players from outside the Midwest to Nebraska. But um, you know there it, there is a lot of credit due uh, to the coaches who are on Scott Frost's staff. Many of them have connections in the in the Southeast. Um, Nebraska just hired Matt Lubick as an offensive coordinator and receivers coach with connections on the West Coast. They are still successful uh, in 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 beating. Uh, frankly, their rivals in the Big Ten West w- when it comes to recruiting. Um, but I think Nebraska fans are tired of winning in December and February and you know, want to see their team compete uh, in those, those, uh, those 12, 13 weeks in the fall. Yeah, and they're still coming, and that's why Mitch's podcast with our own Max Olson is called The Sellouts. You can hear that every Wednesday wherever you get podcasts, and uh, be sure to check that out. And Mitch, thank you so much for joining us and, and adding some context to a conversation that, that started in the SEC but inevitably kept going back to Lincoln, Nebraska. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Andy. 
We go from a story that starts in the SEC and kind of has national implications, the Bopolini thing, to one that has national implications but is firmly grounded in the SEC. There have been some big changes at Georgia since the season ended. The Bulldogs have undergone an offensive overhaul, new quarterback, new offensive coordinator, new offensive philosophy, probably. It's going to be very interesting with one of the programs that we kind of regard as one of the five or six that feels like it has a shot to make the playoff every year. Coming up next, Seth Emerson, our Georgia beat writer, will help us digest all those changes and explain what it means in Athens. I bring on Seth Emerson, our, our fantastic Georgia beat writer. And Seth, I'm going to ask the question that's on everybody's mind who listen to this listens to this podcast regularly. Are we on the verge of seeing what we like to call fun Georgia all the time? Huh. Is that what these offensive changes mean? All the time? As in every single game? I Every single drive? I don't know. but I don't know about every drive, but every game, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'll put it this way. I thought that they were headed in that direction anyway if they had kept James Coley in the play caller role. Uh, they were, they wanted to do that. They had shown that they wanted to do that against LSU, but the execution was bad and they were playing from behind pretty much the whole time. Um, and they showed that against Baylor. But when they hired Todd Munkin, when Kirby hired Todd Munkin, he made a statement that yeah, we need to get better and we need to we need to change this a little bit. Now, am I willing to one hundred percent say that they're gonna open up the offense and be fun Georgia all the time? I can't do that yet because you still look at Todd Munkin's history and, and he there's enough there to say that, you know, he he's not as much an air raid guy. You know, he never really was an air raid guy in the Mike Leach mold. Um, it just kind of veered that way. Uh, I I do remember Jim Chaney, and he ran a good offense in Georgia for two years in 2017 and 18, not 16, his first year. But Jim Chaney was the same guy who did basketball and grass with Drew Brees and Purdue, and he evolved into something closer to Kirby. I just don't think there's enough time for Todd Munkin to have evolved closer to the man ball kind of thing. So, yeah, I think Georgia's going to be more opened up and more fun on offense. My long-winded answer. Well, and, and that's the thing. that Munkin is not necessarily an air raid guy. It's not what he came up in. Uh, for those who don't know the history, so Dana Holgerson was the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma State for one year before he was given the the head coach-in-waiting job at West Virginia, but it was really the head coaching job. That was a whole mess that we don't need to get into. But Mike Gundy hires Todd Munkin and basically says, here you will run this offense that Dana ran last year that worked great with Brandon Whedon and, and Justin Blackman and all these really talented skill players. We want you to run that. And for two years, it was fantastic. But that's not his his grounding in offensive philosophy. That's just what he picked up. And then he goes to the NFL. And, and let's be honest, I mean, the Bucks a couple years ago, 2018, they, they chucked it around quite a bit. Right. Yeah, I, I think it will depend on your version of what fun Georgia is. Will they pass it more? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but are they going to be, you know, air raid all the time? No. Um, I think it'll be more of they'll they'll they, I, I would expect more passing. I would expect more up tempo uh, that the up tempo part, I think, is something that that I never Andy got a really good answer from anybody last year on why they didn't do that more. There were always good answers on. Well, why aren't you passing it more? Well, we don't feel good about our receivers. We're we're better at running back. Um, why aren't you? Why do you run it up the middle so much? Well, you've got to pound the defense, pound the defense, so you can surprise them with the pass and and wear them down, et cetera, et cetera. But with the tempo thing, you never got a good answer from anybody. I was like, well, why don't you go tempo more? Every time you go tempo, it works. And then they got away from it. So. Munkin likes to do that, and I think they'll do that a lot more, and they will pass it more, it, but I don't think it'll be the chuck it around like Oklahoma State 2011-2012. Well, but even that was a, a fairly controlled passing game. They would go deep every once in a while, but they were good at high percentage passes that got you yards, and, and yeah. they there were a lot of eight, nine-yard gains there that if somebody broke a tackle, then they became a 20-yard gain, but they... 
they specialized that era in some high percentage passes that that got the ball down the field. Uh, Jamie Newman is the other the other big piece of this. He's the quarterback who was at Wake Forest. He's coming to Georgia as a grad transfer. What does his skill set bring that's maybe different than than what Jake Fromm brought? This is another kind of thing where it you look at it's just like Todd Munkin where you have in Jamie Newman a dual threat quarterback who is different than what Georgia has ever had yet when he comes to Georgia do you say is he going to put his imprint on Georgia's offense and change everything or is Georgia gonna change him or are they gonna kind of meet in the middle I think it'll be a little bit of a meet in the middle when everything I've heard about Newman that's talking to people close to him um, the buzz I've heard behind the scenes is that one of the reasons he wanted to come to Georgia as opposed to an Oregon or a place like that is that he wants to get himself ready for the NFL and that means playing in a more classic pro style offense. Then they bring in Todd Munkin who doesn't seem to be this classic pro style offensive coordinator even though he's been except he was just an offensive pros. coordinator in the pros yes, <laughs> exactly yes. and and yeah i mean the, and what's the definition of pro style these days anyway i mean what what is it you know they're doing rpos in the pros they're they're doing three four right. wide receivers in the pros we, we, um, when we say when we say pro style i think what we mean is is two backs a tight end two receivers uh you're going to line it up. There's a lead blocker usually, whether it's a fullback yeah. or an H back. Uh, you're going to huddle. You're that nobody does that anymore. So we, no. we probably need to come up with new terms. Yeah, it's 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 an antiquated term. I don't, but I don't know what the West Coast. Do we just go back to a West Coast offense? But the thing is, that's, that's not a very what specific Georgia thing too. Yeah, anybody does either. I mean, Georgia, you wouldn't recognize if if you went back to 2010. You wouldn't have looked at Georgia's offense in 2019 and recognized it. You would have thought that it was something out of like that. It was, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was something completely out of the future, which is what they stole what that Chip Kelly guy does in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what they were doing because Georgia, for all the man ball stuff, and I believe me, I was right there criticizing them for being too run heavy and jamming the ball up the middle when it didn't really seem to be there and when teams were stacking the box. But they were still going 3-4 wide a lot. Shot, they were a shotgun offense. I mean, you don't go under center anymore unless it's goal line or short yardage. Um, and they were doing RPOs and all this crazy stuff that back in 2010 would have been like, whoa. But it's what you do when the play is called. It's not the formations anymore. It's what you do when the play is called. And so for Georgia, that means are they airing it out more? Are they doing more exotic pass routes? And is Jamie Newman going to give them this dual threat that they haven't had? I I think with Newman, to get back to, I guess, your original question about him, um, I I don't know that you're going to see them calling runs for him all the time. I think uh, think Kirby Smart's – fascination with a dual threat quarterback which by the way he's wanted for a while he he saw what deshaun watson did to his alabama defense he signed he, he, justin Fields. he did have he's, one i was gonna say he did yeah, have one he he got a commitment from john reese Plumley. he just couldn't hold on to him they asked him the blue shirt and he said no i'm gonna take this offer and and i'm gonna go play for matt luke at ole miss guess where matt luke is now um but anyway so he's wanted a dual threat kirby has He's got one now, but I don't know if it's so much about you've got three different plays, pass, tailback run, quarterback run. I think it's more this gives him an option when the pass play breaks down, when the coverage is good and there's no pass there. He's got a guy who can run. But I do think that when it comes to the RPOs, it's going to help too, that it's going to throw in another option for them too. We talk about physical fitness a lot, but there's another side to the game that's just as important. I'm talking about mental fitness. Calm, the number one app for sleep and meditation, has teamed up with LeBron James to help you train your mind. Apple's 2017 App of the Year, with over 37 million downloads, offers an array of benefits, including an improved night's sleep, sharper focus, decreased anxiety, lower blood pressure, and much more. You, too, can experience the benefits of Calm by visiting calm.com forward slash staples for 40% off a Calm premium membership, which gives you access to Calm's library of meditation programs, ranging from sleep stories for bedtime and breathing exercises to relaxing sounds and videos. 
See firsthand why Calm has been featured in Forbes, USA Today, The New York Times, and other major publications like us at The Athletic. Don't wait. Visit calm.com forward slash staples for 40% off a premium membership to the number one app for sleep and meditation. Yeah, and I got the sense that Newman thought he probably ran a little bit too much at Wake Forest last year. Yes. I don't think yes. Georgia's going to ask him to do that much. That There's going to be a lot of who's going to have it. Is it going to be you or Zamir White? And you are, you are taking a defender out of the play just by creating that moment of indecision. He doesn't always have to keep it. He does have to keep it every once in a while, but he doesn't probably have to take the pounding he had to take at Wake Forest would be my guess. Yeah, and I think something that also, not only do they have Zamir White still, but they've got James Cook, a guy who was underused the last couple years, but they they had trouble getting to him because they had DeAndre Swift and Brian Herring in addition to Zamir White. But they've got James Cook. They've got a five-star tailback coming in in Kendall Milton. There's still, you know, still some question about whether they're in the mix for Zachary Evans, maybe the best tailback Ken- prospect who has baggage. Um, Ken- so Kenny, Kenny McIntosh still there too. Yeah, Kenny McIntosh, who they like a lot. Um, so they're, they've got options there that may be better than trying to make Jamie Newman your leading rusher. I don't think that's going to happen. And I think Todd Munkin will remind you that he had a running back named Joseph Randall at Oklahoma State who did pretty well for him too. So it's it's not like Todd Munkin is bringing, like I said, not to be a broken record, but it's not like he's bringing the air raid to Athens. But the very fact that he's willing to come here, the very fact that Kirby was willing to hire him, the very fact that Jamie Newman was willing to come here and is going to be the starting quarterback means that change is definitely coming to Georgia's offense. It's just a matter of how much. Well, let's talk about some of the other changes and and maybe how they affect the offense, but also how they affect recruiting. Because Sam Pittman, one of their best recruiters, especially of offensive linemen, obviously that was his position group, he's now the head coach at Arkansas. Matt Luke, who was the head coach at Ole Miss, becomes the O-line coach. James Coley was the play caller last year. He was also their ace recruiter in South Florida. He's gone to Texas A&M now following the demotion. What changes in that dynamic? Well, it, it goes from it it goes from being an offense that I think was James Coley was in charge of it, but you never knew really how much he was in charge of it with how much was being kind of influenced by what Kirby wanted to an offense where Todd Munkin is the guy running the show, and I suspect that Kirby Smart is more like let's put it this way. You didn't really know what was happening on Sunday and Monday when they were setting up the game plan before, whether James Coley and Kirby Smart, you know, whether Kirby was looking over Coley's shoulder as he made it to now, I think it'll be, uh, Todd, what do you got for this week? And Todd says, here we got. And Kirby says, okay, looks good. Probably more along those lines than than before. Well, and that's pretty similar to what went on at LSU this year where Ed Orgeron who now he was never a defensive play caller either so he kind of let Dave Aranda do his thing too but Steve Ensminger and Joe Brady were basically told all right go get it done I will Mm -hmm. you know pop into a meeting every once in a while but I'm not going to tell you what to do is is Kirby Smart you know, is he comfortable with that? Because that's hard for coaches sometimes. Yeah, I don't I don't know that he will completely divest himself that way. Not that Orgeron completely did, but he did a, a little bit. I, I think Kirby's still involved. I think he's still going to probably be in these meetings. But something that I've, I've understood about the dynamic at Georgia is that um, basically Kirby's in as many meetings as he can be. And I think he probably would still be involved in a lot of the offensive meetings. I don't know if he'd be like shut out of it, but um, the I, I think you go back to here. Here's what we know about when Coley got the job. When Coley got the job, he was promoted into it. So number one, he's inheriting a system. Number two, if he wanted the job, he wanted a promotion. So when Jim Cheney leaves. It was a Tuesday night. Right away, I heard James Coley was likely to be promoted. But for a couple days, Kirby kicked the tires on Dan Enos and Eddie Grant, maybe some other people before on Friday announcing James Coley as the choice. But James Coley didn't really have any leverage there if he wanted to change the system, if he wanted to bring in a new playbook. Um, he was 
promoted into a job, so he basically runs the same system. And I had people who were outside. I had one former player who was around during the Jim Chaney days who was watching Georgia games from afar last year said, I, I watch on Saturdays and it looks like it's just Jim Chaney's offense. It doesn't look like anything's really changed. Maybe there's some terminology that's changed, but not much. Now Todd Munkin comes in and he had leverage from the outside. Um, I, I don't know that he had NFL offensive coordinator possibilities, but there were probably more than a few other college programs than Georgia that were willing to, you know, maybe boot their offensive coordinator aside to hire him. So Munkin had some leverage behind the scenes to say, okay, Kirby, I'll come, but I want to bring my offense with me. I want to do this. And Kirby then could say, that's great. I, I do want you to do these kind of things. Let's meet in the middle. And even if they meet in the middle, that's more than maybe James Coley had the ability to do. Now, I'm saying all this, and we're kind of crapping on Kirby Smart and his offensive philosophy. So as I'm hearing myself say all this, I want to be clear. Look, they what Georgia did with Kirby Smart as the head coach in 2017 and 2018 was very successful. So there's still a lot of question about what went wrong in 2019. And the fact of the matter is I think a lot of things figured into it. And now we have a very intriguing Georgia offense in 2020 because – Basically, everything is new. Well, and the, the other thing about it is we, we should both do this. They were 12-2 and two in 2019. Mm-hmm. They did fine. Yeah. They, they won the SEC East. They've won the SEC East three years in a row. They're doing just fine. Some things needed to change, especially with, with Jake Fromm going pro, and it does seem that they've been willing to address it. I, I think this bodes well for Georgia's future that, that Kirby Smart does seem flexible and willing to look at something different than what they've been doing. I, I think that's a positive sign. Yeah. I, I, keep, I keep having people tell me, oh, well, this means that Georgia's below Florida now. I'm like, no. I mean, I was at that game. They still seem fairly ahead, even with an offense that was not yeah. as functional as they would have liked. So I, until I yeah. see Florida beat them on the field, I'm not, I'm not going to get on that train. I, I mean, look. Georgia's still recruiting way ahead of Florida and everybody else in the SEC East. Um, I do think that Florida with Dan Mullen can, you know, you don't have to be in a talent equal ability to beat Georgia every now and then, maybe win the East. Um, But it's still a wide talent gap right now. The other part of it is, and, and yeah, I had this on my timeline on Saturday when it was even after James Coley leaving, also the the player personnel director, Marshall Matchow, who's been here with Kirby for four years, who's leaving for Texas A&M, I was getting the same thing that, you know, Georgia's falling apart, you know, Fromm left, Swift left, Andrew Thomas, you know, everything's, and it's like, look, there's a few people who are still here. One of them is Scott Sinclair, the strength and conditioning coordinator, who everyone wanted to know how Alabama kept churning through assistant coaches all those years. and Scott Cochran is how. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Cochran and Nick Saban remained. Constant going into year five. Scott Sinclair, strength and conditioning coordinator. He's lost a few of his staffers, but he's still there, and he's still really good. And Kirby Smart, who you can say what you want about stuff going on on offense, but that defense was pretty good last year. And he has shown an ability to replace these coaches with some pretty good hires. They they lost, by the way, their defensive coordinator, Mel Tucker, last year. He went to Colorado. And they turned around, and under when he promoted Dan Lanning to the position, he ended up being a Broyles finalist because the defense ended up being third in the nation, I think. And maybe it was second in the nation in yards per play, but it was a great defense despite all this change. And Kirby Smart was able to go get Matt Luke, which, you know, I mean, Luke was available, uh, but he was able to go do that. He found Dan Lanning when not many people knew who Dan Lanning was. You know, he, he's, he's still here. Scott Sinclair is still here. And he's got an administration which, unlike during the Mark Richt era, is giving him the money to compete financially when it comes to facilities and staff. So I don't, I don't see Georgia falling apart at the seams by any means. The other thing is that there seems to be a coherent philosophy. And you can say, oh, well, they're changing the offensive philosophy, but it seems to be tracking with what they've been wanting to do for a little while and just haven't quite figured out how, which is you could say the same thing. That's what LSU did before this past season. They hadn't gotten it right, 
they knew what they wanted. They had an idea of what it looked like, and they finally got to it. Maybe Georgia does that, but there definitely seems to be a coherent philosophy, which I think was the problem at the end of the Mark Richt era. There was not a coherent philosophy of what they wanted to be. Remember when they, they hired Jeremy Pruitt, mm-hmm. and they kind of went the half measure of, let's be half Alabama. Well, you're either all the way in or all the way out on, on that deal. And I think now they've got a, a good cohesive overarching philosophy it's just a matter of will this tweak to the offense work and we won't know that until we see it on the field yeah and we could go on about like how the mark rick era the the tail end of it with pruitt actually set up the kirby era but yeah that that is exactly what's since the start here he has instilled a philosophy that is an overarching philosophy that continues that part isn't changing either they're, they've still got all these. They, they've still got the Alabama model. They've still got Kirby. They've still got so- Scott Sinclair. And you know, when it comes to the offense, and, and Georgia fans were there were many who were apoplectic when Kirby wouldn't say anything about making changes to it after the SEC championship, or in mid-December when I asked him an open-ended question about have you thought more about your offensive philosophy and changing it and whatever? And he, he didn't say anything. He didn't commit to anything. I kept telling people like, look, do you remember Mark Richt and Mike Bobo calling a press conference in the early 2010s to say that we're going to a no huddle that we're going to go, you know, three or four wide 71% of the time now? No, they, they just did it. And do you remember Nick Saban doing that? Did he call a press conference and say, we're going to, pass it all around. You remember Ed Orgeron saying that? I mean, if they did, I don't remember. They just did it. You do it by how you hire and fire and and who you bring in and he's doing that now. Kirby's doing that and he's he's doing what now we have to see it happen on the field in twenty twenty. And he actually Kirby has not faced questions since the hiring of Todd Munkin or the bringing in Jamie Newman. So it'll be interesting to see what he does say about these guys. It's just been press releases and statements so far. But by his actions, he's showing that he has learned, that he has been chastened by what happened last season. Well, we will find out what happens. It's going to be a very interesting spring for you to cover, Seth. Thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, Andy. All right. Seth Emerson. You can listen to Seth on Damn Good Podcast which is a great name for a podcast every week, wherever you get podcasts. And I think our conversation may actually wind up on damn good podcast too, which is great. Cause while I love the Andy Staples show, uh, we we've had our talks about its name and what the initial spell damn good podcast is just a damn good podcast name. So I'm proud to be affiliated with it. I, I did not realize those were the initials. Thank you. Thank it you took me months, know. too. It <laughs> took me months. But John Hayes, wow. my producer, knew it. <laughs> knew it all along. Seth, thank you. I will leave you with that, and you will never stop thinking about it. I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm thinking of the TASS, like the old TASS news agency, the Soviet Union. Oh, that's what we're thinking gr- of, right? That's even worse. Good Lord. I'd no. rather be ass than TASS. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Seth. All right. Thank you. That'll do it. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please tell a friend. Have them subscribe. Please rate and review. We love the five-star reviews. We're not too fond of the one-star reviews, but hey, if that's how you feel, speak your truth. We love you listening, and thank you. And now, a special Super Bowl week preview of The Lead, a daily podcast by The Athletic. It's Super Bowl week, Kavitha. Yeah, man. I mean, Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs just went off during these playoffs. And that Niners defense is just stout. Right. And the one guy everyone will be watching closely is the dude who torched the souls of Packers fans and basically gave Jimmy Garoppolo the day off. Mostert, left side. Another first down carry and more. How about a touchdown? His fourth touchdown of the ball game. Raheem Mostert ran for 220 yards and four touchdowns against Green Bay. This is a guy who was cut by six different NFL teams and who, before the season, was mostly seen as a special teams player. And so today, we're going to speak with The Athletic's Tim Kawakami, who has been covering the 49ers for years, about 
how much of a surprise Mostert's performance really was, if he was a one-game wonder, and how surfing has influenced the way he runs. The wave hits and then he's gone. It's a very interesting kind of combination of a surfer running back. From Wondery and The Athletic, I'm Anders Kelto. And I'm Kavitha Davidson. This is The Lead. It felt like something great was happening. There was just something about the emotion and that moment. You gotta go faster, faster. The failures of the past don't matter because we've got this guy. Now. This isn't a story where you interview the athlete and go home. It stays with you. So, Tim, Raheem Mostert's performance against the Packers was truly historic. What was his reaction after the game? Uh, it was like, you know, yay, Raheem, did you know that was one of the greatest games a running back ever had in the NFC Championship game? No, I did not, actually. And truthfully, for you to even say that right now is like, I, I'm still shocked. Like, I can't believe that. That's the kind of guy he is, the kind of guy a lot of these players are. But especially Raheem had been bouncing around from Lee, from team to team. Really wasn't thought of as a running back until the 49ers just started plugging him in there. And he just never had a bad run. He just never went for less than five yards. So you might as well just keep giving it to him. Somehow the handoff into the arms of Mostert. He's gone. Touchdown, San Francisco. You know, just he still acts like a journeyman. He acts like a guy who was a special teams player who isn't going to be a featured back while he's putting up some of the you know mega numbers in the playoffs. They, they all treat themselves and they look at the world like they're a bunch of journeymen. It's, it's very, very refreshing. Uh, and I think it is a large part of how they've kind of coalesced together. They all Nobody's bigger than anybody else in that locker room, even the guy who goes for 200-whatever yards in the NFC Championship game. He's a surfer, right? He is a surfer. First of all, you got no wetsuit on. You're just straight trunks. You ride longboard, shortboard. You've been to Mavericks yet? Like, like, walk us through the surfing and when you started and how you got into that. You know, I started uh, surfing when I was about 13 or 14, and uh, you know, it's just been a big hit for me, uh, going out there on the waves and riding the waves like you see in this video, man. Um, just enjoying the, the the atmosphere and the water, and I, I want to go to Mavericks. So you know, almost got a surfing contract from Billabong. He's, you know, Florida waves. So out here in California, we're not sure what that is. But uh, I guess they get waves out there, and he certainly he runs like a surfer. Mostert in the backfield, he gets it. Samuel out in front, touchdown. Kind of feels the crest. He kind of like glides towards to where the hole is, and then catches the next wave, and there he's gone. And guys. Don't expect him to get past him, and they get past him. It's not like a classic running back. He's not like Walter Payton juking, juking, juking. He's kind of kind of filling the moment, feeling where it is. The wave hits, and then he's gone. It's a very interesting kind of combination of a surfer running back. And uh, do you think he's been enjoying his time in the spotlight here? <laughs> yes, I think he has. He understands what it's like not to be any part of this, to be a, such an afterthought to your cut by five teams. He understands that, you know, a world where he's not a star. He's lived in that world. So he's going to enjoy it a little bit. Again, I don't think he's seeking out crazy fame, but these guys are all kind of enjoying it. Right now, they're all kind of like, this is pretty good. This is pretty good right now. And so, Tim, Mostert's performance seemed to come out of nowhere. But did you foresee this? You know, I don't think you ever foresee a guy going for 200 plus and then NFC Championship game unless he's, you know, a top, top pick. He certainly wasn't. But he's been impressive. Every time he's carried the ball, he's been impressive. He's been a star special teamer. So you knew he had some skills, but you saw something building there. And you sometimes running backs just come out of nowhere. You, this, the Shanahans are famous for that. Pulling some guy out of the fifth round, he runs for a thousand yards. Mostert is in that category. They've tapped into something with him. Kyle Shanahan recognized it, though. So he's been good for most of the season. Well, Tim, thanks for joining us. And it'll be interesting to see if Mostert and the 49ers can pull it off on Sunday. All right. I'll see you. Talk to you later. 